Well, I'm glad you've joined us. We're continuing with our series of stories in the gospel. And when I say stories, uh, I'm not talking about myths. I'm talking about real events in the gospels that help us just sort of look at Jesus from every perspective. So I'm gonna say a prayer for us and we're gonna jump right in. This is one of the more controversial teachings of Jesus. So I'm excited to, to get into this and see what your questions are. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, the opportunity to reason together and to get to know you better through the revelation that you have given us. Lord, I do pray for peace in our world and I know that that's unlikely given the people that are involved, but nothing is, is too great for you. And I pray that you would turn the hearts of the leaders, Lord, that you would work through events to bring relief to those who are suffering. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's our number for questions, as we do every time during class. If you have questions, feel free to text them to that number. And we are, as I said, just going through the Gospels. We're gonna move through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just looking at maybe some of the lesser known or lesser taught uh, incidents in Jesus' life and some of his teachings, some of his parables, some of his miracles, to just get a really well-rounded picture of who Jesus is. And so for this lesson, we're going to be in Matthew chapter seven, and it is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter five, six, and seven is one long set of teaching uh, that Jesus gave, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. I do wanna remind you of something that you, I think we just forget sometimes. This is not the only time Jesus taught these things. In other words, Jesus was moving around, part of his mission was going not just through Judea, he actually went into a number of the Gentile areas and he was teaching. So we have this teaching all together, but these pieces of this teaching you'll find in the other Gospels. And sometimes people will say, well, wait a minute, there's a teaching of about the narrow gate in Luke and one in Matthew, and they're not exactly the same. Oh no, the gospels aren't true. It's just remember, Jesus taught these things many, many times in many, many places. And so you're gonna hear stories that are a little different. Of course they're a little different because like, I don't think I've ever taught the same lesson twice. You know, you just will always change it around a little bit. So the Sermon on the Mount though is beautiful because we get everything together. So here's the thesis. If I could just tell you what's the theme that runs through the whole Sermon on the Mount because it is radical teaching. And there, you've been a lot of lessons on it. You've probably heard a lot of sermons on it. But think about the Sermon on the Mount as describing a different way of living that is only possible through a different way of being. Don't think about it as moral teaching. It's, it's far more than moral teaching. It's about kingdom life. It's a different way of living. You know, forgive your enemies, pray for your enemies, turn the other cheek, don't trumpet your giving. I mean, all the things that are so countercultural in the gospel. It's a different way of living that's only possible through a different way of being. The transformative effect of, of being transferred from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of Christ. And remember that thought because we're gonna look at the very tail end, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in some ways it's a little bit of a summary, but it's kind of making a really sharp point. But remember, this is talking about living differently by being differently. 
So I wanna outline the tail end of this. So 7.13 through 7.27, that's the tail end of this sermon, and it fits in a rhetorical or literary structure. I don't know if you've thought about this much, but the Bible, as it's put together, the Holy Spirit brings these truthful words. Their Bible says exactly what God wants it to say to you. This is a revelation from God. The way that it is composed is, is also a revelation from God. In other words, it's not just what it says, it's how it says it. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there is remarkable rhetorical and literary complexity in the Bible. It's not just what it's saying, but it's how it's structured. So let me give you one of the simple structures. You'll see this in a lot of places. Very common in literature of this era, just other Greek literature of this era, and Latin literature as well. This is what's called a chiasm. A chiasm is basically a way of nesting teaching. So verses 7, 13, and 14 are an exhortation. And I'm going to actually step you through each one of these little short paragraphs, and you'll see. But I want you, before we go through it, to see the structure of it. It's an exhortation. What do I mean by an exhortation? That's kind of a biblical word. What we would basically say is it is a command. It is instructive. It's an instruction, if you will. Enter through the narrow gate. Then there's a section that's essentially about false prophets. Basically says that false teachers will arise, they'll be like wolves among the sheep. Then it goes to the passage I wanna talk about. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven. So you know, it's talking about didn't we prophesy in your name, meaning didn't we teach in your name? And he says, I do not know who you are. So this is another kind of a false teacher. It's not one that Jesus has sent. And then back to another instruction or exhortation, and that is the house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and builds uh, and puts them into practice is like a man who builds a house on a rock. And the point is, build your house on the rock. Enter through the narrow gate, watch out for wolves in sheep clothing. Just because you call me Lord doesn't mean that you come from me and build your house on the rock. Is that helpful? I'll point this out again in different places, but you're gonna see this chiastic structure a lot. Here's the interesting thing. This kind of structure in all kinds of literature, particularly Greek literature of the time, the reason to structure something like this is you are teaching all four of the things here. There are four little teachings, but you're emphasizing the ones in the middle. This is the emphasis of this rhetorical style. So this little flow that I'm gonna show you is really all about enter through the narrow gate, build your house on the rock, avoid following untrue teaching. Whether they're wolves in sheep clothing or they're people that say, Lord, Lord, but they don't teach what I teach. Does that make sense? So this is about, what we're gonna talk about or what the main point of this is about. So we're gonna just step through these so you get the flow, and then we're gonna focus on the ones in the middle. So first, 713 basically says, enter by the narrow gate, Jesus said, for wide is the gate and easy is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who enter that way. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. 
This is an interesting uh, answer to a question, and that is, will many, very many people go to heaven? I mean, if you think about it, there's some Christians, you know, just Christian traditions that would say, yeah, some called universalists would say everybody go, is gonna go to heaven. Well, that's obviously not a biblical teaching. It's very hard to substantiate that in the Bible. But then there are others that would say, well, most people are, because all you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus. It's just interesting and instructive that Jesus says, no, not very many. Now, does he give you a number? No, you know, he obviously doesn't, but he said it's easy and wide to, to live the path of destruction. It's a narrow gate and it's not easy to live the path to life. So this idea of saying, look for the narrow gate. Do not follow the trampled path that all the herds before you have followed. Okay, next. This is now talking about false teaching. Beware of false prophets. And when it talks about prophets, by the way, let me just say that when you think of the word prophecy, you may think of predicting the future. Prophets didn't actually predict the future, God did. And sometimes God told a prophet, tell Israel this is what's gonna happen. And so you do get some prediction, but 99% of what prophets did, 99% of what the word prophecy is about is conveying to people what God has to say to them. So if you plopped yourself down and followed Isaiah around, for example, you would find him just going from place to place teaching, preaching, passing along, you know, admonition, turn from the, your evil ways. Or Israel, don't you remember that God commanded us to uh, be generous to the poor? Why are you not being, in other words, prophets were preaching and teaching God's word. So when we talk about false prophets, you're really talking about false teachers, not necessarily people that are predicting the future and it doesn't come true. I suppose that is a false prophet, but this is talking a little bit more about teaching. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit or bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's kind of a you don't want to be a false prophet. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We'll go into this in a little more detail. But so you have the enter by the narrow gate. Watch out for people that are going to lead you toward the wide gate, toward destruction. And then this passage, which answers an interesting question. Can you live like a Christian? Can you be a, quote, good person, quote? I put that in quotes because I don't believe there is such a thing, but let's just use the common language. Can you be a good person and not be saved? Can you say, I'm a Christian, and live a good life and not be saved? Apparently, the answer to that is, yes, that's possible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, now he's talking about judgment day, many will say to me, that's interesting, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach or teach? And cast out demons in your name? 
as in we did some serious stuff, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is one of the more bone-chilling verses in the Bible. And when I say it's controversial, what I mean is, is it hits you in the face and you're like, whoa, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about people who would say they were Christians. They're saying to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we do good deeds in your name? And he says, I never knew who you were. So can you live like a Christian and not be saved? And the answer is apparently yes. Jesus says yes. And then let's finish it out. We go back then. So we've got enter the narrow gate, watch out for the false teachers. Don't, don't kid yourself that saying Lord, Lord is enough to get in, into heaven. And now build on the rock. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, floods came, winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine but does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his home on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, winds blew, beat against that house and it fell and the fall was very great. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so you have to ask yourself in situations like this, why is he talking about these things at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's pretty obvious to enter through the narrow gate and build your house on the rock. He's just gotten through telling you all kinds about a new way of living that comes from a new way of being. And so he's talking about this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And so it makes sense at the end he's saying, Pay attention, follow this, because this is the narrow way. This is not where most people are going. Most people are stampeding in another direction that leads to destruction. You pay attention to what I've taught you. And of course, this passage is, if you hear these things and do them, practice them, follow, enter the narrow gate, she's saying the same thing here. He's saying, be sure to pay attention to what I'm telling you and go this direction. Live your life built on this foundation not on the foundation of everybody stampeding through the wide gate. So it makes sense at the end, he's going to say, now pay attention and do this, it matters. In fact, it matters, it has life and death matters. But the two pieces in the middle are really what's being emphasized. And what he's saying is, what I'm teaching you here is true. It's a firm foundation, it is the way to life. But you are going to hear people even people who say they are coming in my name who are going to teach you something different than this. So at the end of his sermon, I mean, Jesus loves the people that he's speaking to. And he says, beware that you, and do not be surprised. There will be people that, that claim to come in my name that are gonna preach different things than this and do not follow them. Does that make sense? So I wanna hit those two in the middle a little bit stronger because that's where uh, you, you see this idea. So the first thing I wanna talk about is the false prophets. False prophecy, false teaching, big theme in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There have always been people who will twist for their own purposes, who will uh, basically dilute or reshape 
the gospel to suit their purposes or to suit the purposes of their hearers. In the end times, you get this passage, and I want you to see what a big deal this is. In Revelation, now talking about, uh, depending on how you view the book of Revelation, this is happening now or it's gonna happen in the future. But bottom line, you're gonna see a beast rising out of the sea. This is called the Antichrist. Uh, we're off the page. Antichrist. And he has uh, 10 horns, seven heads. Very symbolic, but this is the Antichrist. This is a picture. This photo was taken. No, I'm just kidding. This is a painting of Satan whispering into the Antichrist's ear. And so Satan is the dragon. He's in charge. He has an Antichrist. And then another beast, and when you say beast, we're really talking about a person, a beast rising out of the earth. That's a spiritual leader. Look how he's described. This is, by the way, the false prophet. So you got Satan, you have this unholy trinity. There's a theme in Revelation that Satan wants to be God. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you've got Satan, Antichrist. So you got God, Christ, Holy Spirit. Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, false spirit. Okay, so he's setting up this unholy trinity, if you will. But look how the false prophet is described. It had two horns like a lamb. Who else has been described as a lamb? Jesus. In other words, he's going to come to you in the name of Jesus. And he spoke like a dragon. He spoke like Satan. So this is the, the false prophet, okay? The point is, he's going to say, I'm here in the name of Christ, but what he's going to teach is not going to be true. Exactly what Jesus was talking about. This is the ultimate false prophet. It exercises the authority of the Antichrist, the first beast, and makes, listen to this, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the Antichrist. Very interesting deep symbology. I won't take much time on this, but fundamentally, the Holy Spirit works in our lives to turn us toward Christ. Think about Romans 8, 28. For God works for good uh, in all circumstances for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he foreordained or really predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in you is conforming you to the, we are going to look like Christ. We're gonna become like Christ. What's the false prophet doing? It is going to speak the words of untruth Satan and make the earth and its inhabitants worship the Antichrist. Satan's goal is not to refute the gospel, it's just to bend it enough to point a different direction. And he's not stupid enough to come and say, you know, this whole Jesus Christ thing, he's not as good a guy as you thought. I knew him when he was little and he just wasn't a good kid. So why don't you worship the Antichrist instead? Well, that's a terrible marketing campaign. I mean, nobody's gonna do that. But if you come and you say, I'm gonna preach the gospel in such a way that it is bent and you end up not following Jesus Christ. You don't obey Christ. That's what this section is about. So, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. What's the point? They look like sheep, Christians, but they are actually wolves. Sheep are not a threat, wolves are a threat. 
And so they're not gonna come to you and say, hey, I'm here to pray on you. I'm here to deconvert. Christian deconversion, have you heard of that? It's a thing now. It's a bad thing. But it's basically where Christians decide, you know what, I no longer believe in Christianity, usually around sexual ethics or maybe around politics or maybe around patriarchal practices, you know, whatever your beef is, you just sort of deconvert. And the thing about people that deconvert from Christianity is they all of a sudden want everybody else to deconvert. And they want to say, you know, the scriptures doesn't say what you think it says, and the church has been wrong about all this stuff, and the church, by the way, is filled with bad people anyway. Well, that's one out of three. There are a lot of, a lot of sinners in the church. And basically try to get people to stop believing. That's the classic definition of a false prophet, right? So you're going to see that happen. So they're gonna to come to you in sheep's clothing and they're usually very emotional and like, oh my gosh, it broke my heart, but I had to do this. And it's like, oh, bless your little heart. You know, I mean, it's manipulative. So if you don't know anything about this, you're like, what is he going on and on about this? This is a big deal for young people is you get Christian celebrities whom they have looked up to who are like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are being led astray by that. Jesus says you'll recognize them by their fruit. How do things turn out with them? He says, and you will know that those who do not bear fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. What's that saying? Jesus says, I will not be kind to false teachers because they have led my children astray. So false teachers present themselves as one of you, and the way to see them is looking at the end, at the fruits of what they're doing. So let me pause there for a second, and then we'll, we've kind of warmed up to the really interesting part. Yes? Were the false prophets teaching Old Testament life living or New Testament living? That's a good question. There were false teachers false prophets. In the New Testament, they're called false teachers, maybe more than false prophets. Same thing. There were false prophets in the Old Testament. They were making false predictions, but they were also teaching that, oh, God's okay with this when it's like, no, he's not okay with this at all. You know, you can read the law of Moses. Obviously, he's not okay with this. And in the New Testament, um, I think I'll quote a passage out of 2 Peter in a minute that's gonna talk about false teachers are coming amongst the Christians as well. So you always have false teachers. So it is an Old Testament, but also New Testament thing. Good question. Okay? So this is the Apostle Paul. What is the protection against false teachers? So I wanna talk about this for a second. This is the Apostle Paul. Now we move from Jesus teaching in Matthew 7, let's call it 30 AD, to Paul, who resurrection has happened, Paul's been converted to Christianity, he's near the end of his ministry. This is probably 58, 60 AD, so, you know, 28, 30 years later. And he's on his way to Rome, where he's eventually gonna be killed, and he stops and he talks to, on the trip, he's got a centurion who's escorting him to Rome, right? He's under arrest. He stops and the elders from the church at Ephesus come to see him. Listen to what he says to them. He talks about false teachers. He said, I testify to you this day. He's talking to the elders of the church. I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
That is hugely important. Paul says, my conscience is clean no matter what happens. I didn't pull any punches. I didn't just tell you part of the gospel. I told you the whole story that God told me to tell you. He says, pay careful attention to your faith and to the flock that's under your care in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We, we can talk, we can quibble about this, but think elders. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, meaning when I die, fierce wolves will come in among you. Among you. These are not people, there's persecution from the world, people that aren't Christians who are going to persecute the Christians. This is talking about people that say they're Christians who are going to lead Christians astray, hence false teachers, false prophets. And they will not spare the flock. And from among your own number, there will arise men speaking untrue things to draw away the disciples after them. And you see that today, you've seen it for 2,000 years. And Jesus said this is gonna happen. Paul said this is gonna happen. And so we have always been a people of the book, meaning we have always let the revelation of God, which we call the Bible, this revelation from God is the standard of our faith and practice. In other words, we don't decide how we're gonna serve God. He has told us through this revelation what we should do. And so Paul is saying, how do you wanna make sure that you're not led astray by false teachers? Follow the revelation of Jesus Christ, the whole counsel of God. That's why we do Bible studies. That's why we read our Bibles every day. First of all, it's a love letter from God. It's literally God speaking to us. Why wouldn't be? But otherwise, how else will we be faithful to God and be able to defend ourselves against people that want to pull us away with persuasive words if we don't know what the Bible says? So that's the second uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, how do you, you do that? Then here's the passage in 2 Peter. He's also writing at the end of his life, this is probably written about 66 AD, right around there. He's about to be uh, crucified in Rome and he's writing to the people, uh, Christians, and he's saying false prophets arose amongst the people in the Old Testament and there will also be false teachers among you, you Christians. This is not people persecuting like the Romans. The Romans aren't false teachers. I mean, they're just persecuted. They don't even pretend to believe in Christ. They're just gonna kill you because you do. And that happened a lot. What he's saying here, they're gonna be people who say they're Christians who are gonna lead you astray, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, destructive sects, destructive teaching, even to the point of denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their, here's a clue, sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is not idle. In other words, God will deal severely with those people. Here's an interesting thing. We talked about how do you uh, protect yourself from false teaching, know the word of God, how do you recognize it? A lot of sensuality, a lot of false teaching, throughout all the centuries, definitely today, involves changing the sexual morality that God has taught. The idea of sexual purity, what is being pure before God. There are a lot of ways to be pure before God, but one of the ways is 
playing to our base desires and saying God is okay if you do the things you really want to do. And secondly, their greed, and I would add to greed, fame. People want to be important and people want to make money. I'm not naming names, I'm not talking about people flying around in private jets, I'm not bringing up any of that tawdry stuff. I am simply saying, how do you know false teaching? You should be a little bit nervous when you see those things. I'm not telling you everybody that's prominent is a false teacher, I'm simply saying these are two interesting things that he brings up about false teachers, okay? Question. Yes. Should the church actively expose false prophets? That's a good question. Should the church actively expose false prophets? I have a little bit of a nuanced answer to this. Because on the one hand, some of what you, I'm gonna, I do not know what the questioner's intention is, but I'm really glad you asked that. Exposing false prophets can take the form of just blasting people on social media that you think are teaching wrong things. I don't think that's terribly effective. I don't think that actually makes much difference. So I'm gonna answer you this question in the affirmative, but I want you to be careful and I'm gonna give you some scriptures about what do I mean by that because I don't want you to say, Terry told me I should just blast everybody on social media that's teaching something wrong. Not terribly effective, not a good witness and not good to have little squabbles because most of the things we squabble about are not essential items. It is entirely possible for Christians to have a difference of opinion on certain issues that somebody might be right, somebody might be wrong, but neither person is evil. There are certain essential things that God said this and other people will say, nah, he didn't really mean that. That's not a disputable issue. That's sort of a essential. There are certain essential things that are that you, you, aren't, you are not allowed to just have a personal opinion about it or a difference of opinion over it. So the things that we squabble about a lot of times are the disputable issues. They're not the essentials. I'm not saying somebody's not wrong, but there's a difference between being wrong and, and being a false teacher. False teacher are leading people away from Christ. You're jeopardizing their salvation. Teaching people that some end time view and this is an end time view, you're not jeopardizing anybody's salvation. Oh, you may be right, you may be wrong, but nobody is going to turn away from Jesus Christ because of that, okay? But now with all those qualifications, that's the fine print. Yes, the church is instructed to deal with people who are leading people away from a saving faith in Jesus. First Corinthians, you just put this in your notes, First Corinthians five. If you read that, you will see that the church, the elders of the church were called upon to make sure that this person who was leading people away from Christ, that was dealt with. It's, it, this is the same question is, as a parent, should you make sure that your children don't hang out with drug dealers that can ruin their life? Well, yes, that is part of your responsibility as a parent. It's part of the responsibility of the leaders of the church to shepherd the flock, the children of God. Uh, Revelation chapter one, two, three you'll see Jesus himself talking to the churches. And one of the things he talks about is he said, I have a problem with you. You tolerate people that teach this. Read it, chapter two, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. So yes, Jesus thinks that 
quote, the church, the leaders of the church in the right way and in the right time most certainly have an obligation to protect the flock. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Take care to yourself and watch out for the flock because there are wolves that want to devour them. So the question is a good one, but be careful that we don't end up starting to snipe at each other about things that are not taking people away from a saving faith in Christ. But there are such things and we are called to deal with it. Yeah. What do good and bad fruit look like? Good and bad fruit in this circumstance is basically saying what is the, think about fruit is the outcome of the plant, of the tree. You can look at a tree and it may look fine on the outside, but if you get to the fruit and the fruit is rotten, you think, oh, that tells me there's something wrong. It is the external sign of an inward problem. Does that make sense? So fruit in this situation is the external sign. So someone's teaching, what are the external signs? For example, if you have uh, a, a preacher or a teacher and you look at their congregation, you look at their flock, you look at them following that teaching, does that then lead broadly to people conforming to the image of Jesus Christ? Or does it lead to people heading down the, the wide gate? That would be the fruit of that teaching, the fruit of that doctrine. So that's, that's basically what is meant, is watch and see what that produces. Does it produce lives that are consistent with Jesus' teaching, or does it produce lives that are consistent with the self-orientation or self-centeredness? Good question. Okay, so, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does, and this is interesting, so saying, Lord, Lord, is not enough. What is enough? Doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not teach in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, interesting story here, and I want to approach this in two ways. First of all, is it possible to lose your salvation based on this passage? We might as well just hit this right up front. So here's the way Christians think about the idea. First of all, the wording is unfortunate, and I think I've taught about this before, so I'll try to be succinct. Basically, you can't lose your salvation. You can't misplace it. It's not like you get to heaven. Oh, where did I put that membership card? Okay, it's not like that. You can't lose your salvation that God gave up on you and said, man, oh man, I know you keep repenting. I know you keep turning back to me, but you are the biggest pain in the neck. How come you don't get this? Okay, it's, you can't lose it because God gives up on you, right? And so you can't lose it. It's out of my control, okay? Because God is unshakable. Here's how Christians think about this, broadly speaking. If you understand the scriptures in a way that we call Calvinism, and what I mean by that is if you read the scriptures and you understand it in the same way that John Calvin and so many people have since, then the answer is no, you absolutely can never lose your salvation. You can never not be saved once you are saved, period. That is a coherent and a very sensible understanding of the scriptures, okay? I mean, you look at that and you say, I may or may not agree with that, 
but that makes good sense of the scriptures. It's not heresy, it's not weird, it's like you can read the scriptures and absolutely understand them that way. On the other side, people who understand the scriptures the way Jacob Arminius understood the scriptures, he and Calvin lived at the same time, he and Calvin were buddies, Jacob Arminius reads the scriptures and says, but wait a minute, I think that we have an element of will, an element of choice, an element of response, is the way we Wesleyans would say it, to God, and therefore you can't lose your salvation, but you can decide you're no longer going to follow Christ. So yes, you can, quote, lose your salvation if you decide to turn away from Christ. He's never gonna turn away from you, but you can turn away from him. Those, I'm really painting with a broad brush, but this is a simple, basic way to understand it. Those two readings of the scripture are both coherent. They both read the scriptures well. Are they both true? Probably neither understanding the scripture exactly right, but that's the basic difference. There are Christians who will say, yes, you can turn away from Christ, and others who say, no, you cannot. It's that simple. Now, what's the right answer? To that. Okay, well, that's, that's in our pay-per-view channel. I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. Just kidding. But I want you to know that that is not a salvation issue. You may say, well, it sure seems like it to me. No, because they both assume that you have saving faith, right? They're basically explaining a situation where you see somebody that looks like a Christian and then it's like, whoa, what happened to you? Well, I don't follow Christ anymore. I deconverted. I decided this. I decided to live life on my own terms. We've all seen that happen. Well, if you think that you can never lose your salvation, what you're going to say is you were never saved in the first place. If you're saying that you can turn away from Christ, you would say, well, maybe you were indeed following Christ, but you decided to stop. This passage leans more toward that you can't because what he's saying here is I never knew you. You were never actually following me. So as far as this passage goes, it tends to tilt toward the you can't. Once you surrender your life to Christ, you will continue and persevere to the end because Christ will make you persevere to the end. So this passage leans much more towards the no. You cannot, quote, quote, lose your salvation. I hate those words, but you know what I'm talking about. You can't lose your salvation because... The nature of this is, I want you to see what's happening here, is Jesus doesn't say you didn't say the right things, you didn't believe the right things. You and I never knew each other. I don't know who you are. We were never actually introduced. Put it in relational terms. We never had a relationship at all, okay? So I'll tell you a story that happened to me back in my prior life. So I'm a, a, one of the things I did as an executive at the company is worked in, uh, didn't do lobbying, but I did work with legislators on particular issues that were important to our company. And so whenever we would go and engage with legislators, et cetera, we would go with a lobbyist, a registered paid person who was working on behalf of the com company. And so I knew some lawmakers, but that wasn't my business. And so I would go with that person. I remember a guy who was a lobbyist for the company I was with. 
and we went to this, uh, it was like a big barbecue and like every lawmaker in Oklahoma was probably there. I mean, free barbecue, right? I would go. So we basically were all there for this big barbecue. And we walked in and he's introducing me to so many people it isn't funny. And I'm like, when we left, you know, having talked to so many people, I said, you know what? You are really good at your job. It's amazing to me how many people you know. And he said something that has stuck with me that's true. I don't know how I didn't figure this out, but he said something. He said, it is not important who you know. What's important is who knows you. And he was exactly right. It was not effective because he could go up to some legislator and say, hey, so-and-so, how are you doing? Let me introduce you to this guy. He'd walk up and they'd say, oh, Jim, how are you doing? It's they knew who he was. That's what really made the difference. There's an actual relationship. And so this is really interesting teaching because what Jesus is saying is, these people are saying, hey, Jesus, we know you. And he's like, but I don't know who you are. That's the essence of the relationship. When we talk about having a relationship with Christ, a relationship is not one way. This passage is talking about a one-way relationship. This is talking about, I have a relationship with you on my terms, right? So it's sort of like, I remember a friend of mine, this in, this in high school, and uh, we were like ninth graders, so we hadn't had a lot of experience in the ways of romance yet. So he had this girl that he had this huge crush on this girl. And so he had worked himself up in his mind that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. The only problem is she did not know that, okay? I mean, it was like he was set that he was in love with her and they were friends. You know, they would do some stuff together and he had it set in his mind that, you know, we're, frankly, we're probably gonna get married, you know? And so they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And I just remember how hard he hit the ground when he found out, I may be her boyfriend, but she is not my girlfriend, right? That's this situation. This is a very one-sided relationship. How do you get into a two-sided relationship? Well, it's kind of important that she's not your girlfriend on your terms. She kind of needs to be part of this and agree to it, and it needs to be on her terms as well. That's what's happening here. There are an awful lot of people who are Christians on our terms. And I'll bet we've all been there, done that, or been tempted to do that. And one of those things that we have to keep nailing to the cross, the whole idea of if you wanna come after me, deny yourself, my way of doing things, take up your cross and follow me. What is he saying? He's saying, you're going to have to crucify all kinds of self-centeredness. And it's not okay to follow me on your terms. I won't be your savior without actually being your Lord. And you're gonna see that. This is a parallel passage, basically, not parallel, it's just other teaching. Uh, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. This is Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many will seek to enter and not be able. Really, people that wanna, want to uh, go to heaven, but they can't. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you stand outside and knock saying, 
Lord, open the door, then he will answer, I do not know where you come from, which is a very Jewish way of saying, I don't know what your authority is to be here. I don't, your identity in Jewish times was your lineage. Where'd you come from? Mary from Migdal. Mary Magdalene, which means the Mary that comes from Migdal. Jesus of Nazareth. Simon, the son of Jonah. Your identity is tied up with where you come from. What's he saying is, I have no idea who you are. Uh, I mean, we don't have a relationship. Even though you think that you know my house and you certainly knew where it was and you could knock on the door, but we don't know. And he said, but wait, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. This is the same teaching that's at the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this passage, this is the blind man that Jesus is healed in John 9. He goes before the uh, Pharisees and they reviled him because he just said, look, I, I didn't see the guy, but all I can tell you is he healed me. They said, yeah, but it was on the Sabbath. He must be a bad guy. And he said, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And so they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. What are they saying? We have no idea who this guy is. This guy has no authority. He has no credibility with us. He's dead to us. We don't know who this guy is. And the man said, well, that's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. In other words, he's obviously got authority and he's obviously got power. So you see this idea of when he says, I never knew you, I don't know where you came from. The idea is we don't have a relationship. You may know who I am, but I don't know who you are. So there never was a relationship. We're back to our uh, basic uh, passage. And a second one of the ideas here is that the identity, the relationship with Jesus. There's a one-way relationship, not a two-way relationship. Now I wanna look at the second piece of why he would say that. But before we do, what question do we have? Yes, um, looking at verses 21 and then 24, we see he who does the will of my father and then hearing these things and does them. So does that imply doing rather than being or legalism? Great question. So it is, I want you to think about this. I'm really glad you asked that. So the question is, do the will, watch this, do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then the next passage is, hear my words and do them. And you think, oh, this is a workspace thing. I have to do the right stuff. No, watch this. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And the answer is, yes, they did. Jesus is not saying to them, no, you didn't do good deeds. Yes, you did. You did good deeds. You did nice stuff. You cast out demons. You did many mighty, powerful works. It's obviously not the doing in and of itself, but, and this is where James comes in so handy. The book of James ties us together. So you know you're saved by grace through faith, through trust, through a transformation inside you. And yet here, we're talking about the things you're doing. Well, it's obvious from this that just the act of doing things doesn't mean there's a saving faith in here. You have non-Christian friends 
who behave better than you. Well, I shouldn't speak for you. I have non-Christian friends who behave better than me, right? And so if this were the case, well then it's not about believing in Christ, is it? It's about how well you believe. We know that's not true from the rest of the Bible. We actually know it's not true from here. Even people who say they're Christians and do these good deeds. So what's the difference? The difference is the deeds reflect what's inside. The two reasons to do good deeds. There's two reasons to put aside your self-interest. Because I'm not gonna tell you that non-Christians can't put aside their self-interest and do good deeds. They can't give money, they can't help people, they can't inconvenience themselves. I'm not here to tell you that everybody who doesn't believe in Christ is a bad person, never does anything good. That's, that's not true. Couple of reasons for putting aside your self-interest in a particular case to do a good deed. One is because you have been transformed and your goal is to be like Jesus Christ. I do this because this is who I am. You understand what I'm saying? It's not natural to me. I'm just God's man now. I'm just God's woman now and this is who I am. Or I do good deeds for any number of other reasons that are self-centered. I feel good. It warms my heart when I do good deeds. It's just a good thing to help people in need and we all feel better. I mean, if you stop, I want you to stop and think about this. Fundamentally, there are many self-centered reasons to do, quote, good deeds. And sometimes you do them in the name of Jesus. But if it's serving me, there's no transformation inside. It is all about the being inside. The deeds can be the same. Clearly the deeds of these people were good. And they said, Lord, we did it in your name. He said, yes, but when I look inside, there's no transformation. This is about you. You and I don't even actually know each other. You never surrendered yourself to me and, and took on my yoke, took up your cross and said, I will let the Holy Spirit transform me. That's the essence of what's happening here. That's a powerful teaching about what it means to be a Christian. It's all about the transformation of the heart. Theologically, we call this regeneration. Uh, what does regeneration mean? Being born again. Think about Jesus and Nicodemus. You can't act good enough. You have to become a new person. Think about Romans. Our old self was crucified. Think about baptism, also in Romans. When we were buried with Christ in baptism and we were raised a new creature to walk in a new life, it's transformation. Deeds alone don't show what's in the heart. You will see the fruit of those deeds. That's why you know so many people, and again, I'm not trying to be critical of other people. We just need to look at ourselves. I mean, I'm not here to judge anybody else. I'm here to observe the fruit in your life, but I'm not your judge. My, my creator is the one that I'm answerable to. And the point he's saying to us is, be careful that you don't do good deeds for show. You don't do good deeds for you. In fact, don't even focus on the deeds. Focus on surrendering everything to Christ. The deeds will flow from who you are. You will be transformed into a new creature. That's what salvation actually is in the Bible. And so that's a powerful teaching. It's a hard teaching. 
But the idea of surrender to Christ is powerful. It's very tempting for us to worship a God of our own making. Tim Keller said it this way, if you find that your God never disagrees with you, you should be really worried because we should all be convicted in some part, why? Because the Holy Spirit is working on pruning us. Pruning hurts, convicted me. Like, I was not patient there. That's not the man that God wants me to be. Lord, forgive me, strengthen me, let's go. Let's continue to try that transformation. As opposed to a self-help, okay, I've got a 10-step plan to be more patient. Those are okay, be very careful though about outward in type things. Let the Holy Spirit do his work inside us and be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Worshiping a God of our own making is very comfortable. And that's why you see teachers that will teach things that are part of the scripture, but not all of the scripture, because I'm just gonna focus on the part that we're comfortable with. And we basically refashion Jesus into a God of our own making. Is it any wonder then when we visit him in heaven and see him face to face and say, Jesus, and he goes, who are you talking to? I'm not the guy you've been serving all along, right? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, you go, I do not know who you are. I don't know who you've been serving, but you haven't been serving me. Fair enough? That's what this passage is talking about. Here's the interesting part. Obedience and faith and love are absolutely the same idea to Jesus. The idea that you can love Jesus but not obey the idea that you can say, Lord, Lord, but you haven't done the will of God, you haven't obeyed, is a completely foreign concept. Uh, here's just some passages I pulled out. Uh, in Luke, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you? In other words, obviously I am not your Lord. Uh, in John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments, this is the last sermon Jesus gave to his disciples. Remember the upper room, Last Supper, walking over to Gethsemane, this is what he's teaching him. He said, whoever has my commandments and does them, that's the person that loves me. We say a lot, oh, that person loves Jesus. And that's a good thing, but how would you know somebody loves Jesus? Jesus said, because they do what I tell you to do. I really am your Lord. What's happening in this passage is people say, Lord, Lord, I did a bunch of good deeds. He said, yeah, but you didn't obey me. You don't know me. You served a God of your own making. And again, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come into them. Worshiping a Jesus who makes me feel good is like having morphine when you're dying. That was harsh, wasn't it? Golly, Terry. But that's really what he's talking about. Remember the narrow gate and the wide gate? If you're on the path to destruction, Satan does not really want you to know that you're headed for destruction. And so what's the best thing to do? Well, I'll give you some palliative to make you comfortable on the road to destruction. And that's what false teachers do. They tell you you're okay when you're dying. Ephesians 2, chapter one, as for you, you were dead in your sins. I'm included in this too. This is Paul saying, as for you, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You just didn't know it yet when you used to follow the way of this world. But God, because he loved us so much, made us alive with Christ. You see what the scripture's saying? It's really a consistent idea, is surrendering into obedience to Christ is the same thing as loving Christ, is the same thing as having faith. So, is it about the doing? 
No, because you can do and not, not be a Christ follower, but you can't be a Christ follower without doing. Why? Because you're going to obey and you're going to be transformed. So I don't know how effective this lesson is, just judging from body language, but I'll tell you, what we're talking about here is the biblical teaching about salvation. That's what salvation actually is. It can't be workspace. It has to be through trust. And trust means I surrender and I obey. It makes perfect sense. We like to pick it apart. And Jesus says, no, it's a package deal. You want me, you get trust, you get peace, you get joy, you have to obey, and you become created in my own image. So relax, and I mean this sincerely, relax. Quit trying to do enough good works to be saved. Just actually surrender to Christ. Let him be the Lord of your life every day, and you have absolutely nothing to worry about. The Holy Spirit is powerful enough to transform you into the image of Christ, and your behavior will follow. You will see it as sure as anything. People that are sold out for Jesus Christ, who have surrendered to Christ, you will see the trajectory of their life change. Will they change as fast as you want? Probably not. But they will inevitably, inexorably, look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the essence of salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So I'll end with two quotes. One of them is scary to me. But this one is powerful. Suzanne uh, Dedietrich wrote a uh, commentary on Matthew. She said, verses 21 to 23, that's what we just looked at, are a dreadful warning. The most orthodox avowals of faith, in other words, you can be avowing all the proper tenets, have no eyes in the value of God if they are not translated into concrete obedience. In other words, Mouthing the right doctrines means nothing if I haven't surrendered my life to Christ. I can say the right things and Jesus will say, I don't know who you are. You never surrendered to me. One may with his lips loudly profess his faith in God and even invoke Jesus as Lord and yet deny him by our thoughts, words, and acts. In other words, the essence of who we are, we deny him. That's powerful. This comes from Charles uh, Spurgeon, one of the great pastors. And this is a warning to teachers. And I know there are probably a lot of teachers amongst us. When, whenever I teach, I think of two things. And I'm not setting myself up as a model, but I want you to know this is a chilling thing. And it, I think of James 3.1. Every time I walk up on a stage is, not many of you should become teachers for we shall be judged by a stricter standard. Of course, you will you have a dire penalty for misleading God's people in matters. I mean, I'm sure I'm wrong about something. I haven't found it yet, but Laura knows a lot of them, so ask her. But in, in, in all seriousness, we are probably all wrong in understanding the scripture in some way. But if you're teaching, you cannot be afford to be wrong about, and I believe the scripture's clear, about things that matter to the salvation of, of the sheep, of the people that you're entrusted with. You're, you'll be judged by a stricter standard. And the second thing that I think is 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the pursuit of knowledge and the desire to impress people is a great way to mislead people because the whole point is connecting people to Jesus, not to the teacher. To the, the best a teacher can be is a clear advocate of the truth of the scripture and a humble 
example of someone walking that path, completely imperfect, but absolutely dedicated to following Christ. And so knowledge puffs you up, but love builds you up. If you actually love people, point them toward Jesus Christ. An Orthodox creed will not save if it stands alone, neither it will be sure to do so if accompanied by some official position, pastor, teacher, whatever. These people said, Lord, Lord. And in addition, they pleaded their teaching and preaching in his name. All the preaching in the world will not save the preacher if he does not practice. Yes, and he may have been successful, successful to a very high degree. Tons of people listen to you. In your name, I've cast out devils, and yet without personal holiness. I do not mean perfection. What I mean is an absolute unwavering devotion to Christ. The caster out of devils will be cast out himself. So a little bit of a downer of a lesson, but got to tell you the whole counsel of God. What does it mean for us to follow Christ? It's not about our deeds, so relax. You don't have to be perfect in your behavior. What you have to be is perfectly devoted and surrendered to Christ and willing to obey. And the Holy Spirit will take care of everything else in your life. Okay? So you guys work on that for a week. I'm expecting big results. And next week, we're gonna talk about how does the truth set you free? What does that actually mean? I'll see you guys next time.